Good afternoon to everybody. Good, good morning, afternoon. I always never know. It's 11.54, so we'll just call it both. Glad you're here, and, and thanks to all the family and friends that came to celebrate today for family dedication. I know it means a great deal to the people that you came to support. My name is Jason. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'm the pastor here, and uh, just excited you came to church today. I think it's a great decision. We're taking the fall... Um, We've been doing it for about eight weeks now. We're taking the fall to study the stories, to read the stories of the first Christians. And we call them the first Christians because they were the first Christians. Uh, and their stories are in the New Testament book of Acts. It's named Acts because it is literally copying and writing down the actions of the Christians, the first apostles and the first Christians. And so we've been just taking time to read these stories. And, and, and we're calling these, these messages, we're kind of theming them with the name Wildfire, because as we study the first Christians, and historically, as you look at the church, the first church, the early Christians, what you, what you find, whether you're a Christian or not, what you find is that what happened with these 120 people is, is remarkable. That 120 turned into a few thousand, into a few million uh, over a couple of hundred years. And these people with no power, no influence, uneducated according to our standards, eventually come to, came to uh, be the greatest influence and the greatest empire in the world, in Rome. And now today there are 42 and a half billion people on the planet who claim to be Christians, who worship God. And this all started with these first 120. And so we're Christians. We believe in Jesus Christ. Our faith is in him. We want to be Christians who have influence. We want to be a church that has influence and uh, in, in a city and builds a better city. And so the question we've been asking is, what did they do that we don't do? What did they have that we don't have? How could we live lives like they lived? How could we experience what they experienced? Because what they experienced, for a lot of us, is quite different than what we experienced. They would pray for people, and they would be healed, and they would meet together, and it would be powerful, and uh, just so many amazing things that, that God did, and because of what God was doing, and because of what God's Spirit was doing, and because of what these people did, these first Christians, the church and the message of Jesus began to spread and gain influence in a city, and then in a region, and then across the world. So that's what we're doing this fall, and today the story that we get to is the story of the first martyr. This is the first person who was killed for their faith. Now, Christians had been persecuted before this story. We'd read some of that. They'd been arrested and put in prison and things like that. But this is the first time that uh, someone had died because of their, their Christian faith. A man uh, named Stephen is the story that we read today. And so, while the other stories maybe that we've read have been inspirational and powerful and miraculous... We come to this story today about someone losing their life for their faith, and we have to at least stop and consider or embrace the fact that every time there is a great move of God, you call it whatever you want, revival, move of God, whatever, anytime, whether it's the first Christians or throughout history, anytime you find a great move of God, you will also find great resistance, great resistance great opposition to what God is trying to do. And the reason that's important to stop and kind of embrace is because if I stand up here to, and say to you, like, we want to win the city, we want to have great influence, we want to win our families, we would be tempted to believe that the way that God wants to do what we're praying for is only through positive things. 
It's only through uh, things that are to our benefit. And I think sometimes it's easy to believe that, um, you know, God wants to keep us out of harm's way or keep us out of trouble or keep us from all danger, but that's not necessarily true. We see that even in our story today. So as much as maybe we don't want to hear it, we, we have to at least accept or admit that one of the ways that God grows Christian influence, one of the ways that God spreads his message and, and Christian influence is through suffering. It's through suffering. And this is so counterintuitive to the way that we think, right? Because if you were um, empowered to grow Christianity, it was your responsibility to figure out how to turn 120 into a couple million, we would go about it much differently. You know, we would try to find some celebrities to endorse it. We would try to make it go viral. We'd try to raise some money to market it in a certain way. And that's, not only did they not do that, what happened for the first Christians was the exact opposite of that. That over the first three centuries, a few hundred turns into multiple millions. And what was consistent for those 300 years was, con- was constant persecution and cruelty. That Christianity grew and spread in spite of what would happen to you potentially negatively because of your faith in Jesus. And we, and we can just look at the last verse we read today to see an example of this. It says, But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church, and he went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison, which is awful. But, it says, the believers who were scattered, so because this is happening now, they're running They're leaving their homes. They're packing and leaving in the middle of the night. And so at first glance, it seems as if evil is winning. It seems as if, you know, the the church is dying. But it says, ha, 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 ironically, devil, these Christians who are leaving so that they are not killed happen to be carrying with them the message of Jesus Christ. And so up until this point, the message of Jesus was only in one little city called Jerusalem. It was just right here. It was in one little city. And the devil and Saul and evil wants to stomp it out. And so it causes the Christians to leave. And what happens is missionaries are sent out. And so here is another example where God uses suffering. He uses trouble to spread his message. It was because of the trouble that the message spread. And this is such a God move. Every time it looks like evil is winning, there's something happening on the backside that God is doing that we never can account for. And only in hindsight do we think, that is so God. So God. You can think of something in your life right now that at the time you thought for sure was going against you, evil was winning, God wasn't helping, and now 10, 15, 20, 30 years later, you look back and say, that was so God. That was so God. Saul here in our stories running around thinking that he is triumphant and all he's doing is spreading the message of Jesus Christ into a region, right? And so with this as our backdrop, I want to spend a few minutes today talking about uh, how to live with courage and, and, and how to live with hope, specifically when it comes to 
facing opposition, uh, facing resistance. And, and when, I, when I say the word opposition, I really mean persecution, but, I'm, but I'm, I'm hesitant to use that word because persecution's relative, isn't it? I mean, even as we're talking right now, there are um, people groups and nations who are in war and being pulled from their homes and losing their life because of their, because of their religious heritage and, and their faith. And in, and in countries all across, nations all across the world, there are brothers and sisters of our faith that are losing their life because they were hiding a Bible or they told their family they became Christians. And if I'm being honest, it's, it's, it's easy for me to get a little bit snarky when we as American Christians talk about persecution because like our Twitter account got suspended. You know what I mean? Somebody's losing their life, and we're, we're saying we're, we're persecuted because we couldn't pray at a football game, okay? And so I'm saying opposition because there's a little hesitancy to use the word persecution, comparing it to things that are happening around the world. But I have to also admit, and we have to also admit, that while we do not face potentially the physical dangers that other Christians in other parts of the world do face, there is a social pressure that we face in America that is every bit as intense or frightening. Because science would tell us that our brains, because of, of, of our caveman brains, because of the machinery in our head, that our body, our brain, struggles to tell the difference between emotional threats and physical threats. That when you feel threatened emotionally, your brain registers it as a, as a physical threat almost in the exact same way. And so the chances are very slim, very slim, that you will ever, as long as you live in this country, be arrested or killed for your faith in, in your lifetime. But that doesn't mean that you, you have nothing to fear. Because many people in this room have very real fears that if you are vocal about your faith or you stand on certain convictions that you could lose your job, you could lose friendships or relationships, maybe you would lose relationships with your children, maybe you would lose business deals or lose your reputation. There's real social pressure and fears that if you, if you take a stand because of your faith that you, you risk embarrassment, ridicule, intimidation, that's a very real thing. And so while other countries face potentially more dangerous persecution, I, I, I do think it's fair to say that it can be just as hard to live for God as it is to potentially die for God. I don't know any real Christian who, if I said to you, would you be willing to lose your life for your faith, that would not, that would not say like, yes, I will, I will give my life for God. But then to actually spend 40 or 50 or 60 years living your life for God can, can sometimes be harder than losing it. And so I want to at least recognize and empathize with the fact that there are very real fears in this room and concerns and anxiety about what it would mean for you to build your life visibly and vocally on Jesus Christ and the Christian faith. 
And so our story today gives us a great opportunity to talk about courage, to talk about hope and, and what that would look like. And so I want to do that kind of in three parts. So what I want to do is first, I want to talk about why. I always want to spend a little time talking about why. I want to talk about why we face opposition because of our Christian faith. And then after that, I want to talk about how we should face opposition. We'll do that. And at the very end, I don't want to spend a lot of time, but at the very end, I want to just talk a little bit at the end about um, where we can find hope, where we can find hope. So we're going to talk about why we face opposition because of our faith and how we should face that opposition and then um, where we could find hope. So first, let's talk a little bit about why we face opposition. Uh, Every human being, Christian or not, has hard times. We have trouble, experience pain. These are very real things. Christianity is not, you know, doesn't have exclusive rights to to opposition or, or problems. But for Christians, there is a specific trouble that we face or a specific opposition that we face because of the reality of evil. And I have to admit to you that as I was typing out my sermon notes and I typed that phrase, the reality of evil, I had to pause for a second and I kind of wondered what you would think when I say that phrase, the reality uh, of evil, the reality of evil. Because when it comes to the topic of evil, there tends to be two kind of dominant sides. And so one side, when you, when you start talking about evil, the presence of evil, one side downplays everything. Nothing's a big deal. Christians are, you know, they overreact. People mean well. And it's not that this first group doesn't believe in any kind of evil. It's just they, they kind of reserve it for only severe cases. And so that's, that's one kind of view of evil. The second is the exact opposite. Everything's a big deal. Everything is evil. Every song or movie has an agenda. There's a demon behind every bush, right? And I've found that usually the people who are in group one were raised by parents who were in group two. It's usually my, that's usually, like if you were kind of raised in an environment where everything was a big deal, you get out of the house and you're like, okay, like there's, everything's not a big deal, right? And so I think there's both groups in the room today. When you start talking about evil, there, there's, there's one group that's naive, and then there's a, a, another group that um, overreacts potentially to it. I think there has to be somewhere in the middle. We've tried to embody this as a church, that we've got to be level-headed, but also not oblivious. And that requires us to admit that there is real evil in the world And more importantly, souls are at stake. I mean, right now, even the things that we are seeing on the news and stories that we are hearing about in the Middle East, these are not just differences of opinion. It's the presence of evil. And there are things that you are facing in your life and challenges that you face that are not just ordinary challenges. They are the reality of of evil. And so if we want to just start at the basic level, the, I mean, the, the, the absolute base, basic level, we could at least, I think, agree on this, no matter what group you fall in. We could agree on the fact that the devil is real. I think we can start there. We can agree the devil's real. Secondly, I think we could agree that he hates God. So I think we're good there. Everybody still with me? Okay, so then third, if he hates God, he hates you because God loves you. 
Now, are we still together on that one? All right, we still got some uniformity there. All right, and then now, if he hates God and he hates you, then his agenda, his plan for your life is to ruin your life. He wants to destroy your life. I'm not making this up. This is what Jesus told us, that his plan is to destroy your life, that Jesus wants to give you life and life abundantly and life to the full, and the devil wants to make you think you're getting full life when he's really taking and and destroying your life. And the way that he does it is not necessarily the stereotypical kind of evils that we think of, but he does it through ideas. He does it through philosophies. The Apostle Paul, when he was warning uh, Christians in, in his letter to the Colossians, he said it this way. He said to Christians, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from, here it is, spiritual powers of this world, comma, rather. So we're going to get an opposite view. So he says there are, there are, there, there's, there's nonsense and there's philosophies that originate from spiritual powers of the world and human thinking, comma, rather than from Christ. So here in this verse, we see that there are ideas and philosophies that come from God, and there are ideas and philosophies that come from spiritual powers, darkness, evil, the thinking of the world. And we know that Jesus says that the truth, God's truth, will set us free. So what does this have to do with living with courage in the face of opposition? Well, remember, we're trying to identify, we're trying to answer why it is that we would face opposition because of Christians. And the answer is because there is a real force, there is a real power that is trying to oppose you and oppose the truth of God. And if you claim to be a Christian, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you are on the side of God's truth, the side of freedom, and there is something opposing you. And so I think we need to be careful that we don't assume that evil is only in a category over here with like witches or uh, demons or what, you know, whatever it is. We're coming up on Halloween, you know, so it's like th- that imagery maybe is a little more visible in our minds in this time of year. But according to the Bible, evil is represented by philosophies. It's represented by ideas. It oppose, it's opposed to God's truth that brings freedom. And so if you go all the way back to like the Enlightenment, civilization has been on this track of believing that they're smarter than God And then postmodernism kind of escalated that idea. And so now many people reject the truth of God and consider those very truths of God that bring freedom in your life to be evil and violent and hurtful. And so you face opposition. You strive to be faithful. You strive to keep the faith. And you are bumping up against ideas that are meant to destroy people's lives. But it also is a warning for us that it would be possible for us to get caught up in and swept up in ideas and philosophies that do not come from God, that do not come from the truth of God. And those ideas could potentially slowly lead us not only into abandoning our faith, 
but working against God and fight against the truth. Did you notice in this story that we read today? I don't know if you were paying attention, but if you read, if you noticed in this story today with Stephen, do you know who was opposing Stephen? Do you know who threw the stones? Do you know who killed him? The religious leaders. Religious leaders. It was people who had, who were even in the religious establishment that who had, who had embraced something other than the truth of God. And so it's at least an opportunity for us to pause and to consider that this could potentially happen to us. And so what do we do? Well, I think three things. Number one, we have to expect opposition. We don't need to be naive, but we don't need to be defensive either. I hope, you, hope we've embodied that over the last 15 years at Hope City. We're not going to be defensive Christians, always outraged, always up in arms, always scared. We're not going to do it, but we're not going to be naive either. We're going to expect some opposition. But then we can look within our own lives and we can consider our beliefs. Are we believing the truth of God or have we been captured by ideas or philosophies that are not from God? And then I think, thirdly, we could review our influences. We could, you know, consider what we're taking in, who's shaping our ideas, what, what books are we reading, what podcasts are we listening to, what, 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 what influential voices in our life are shaping us, and do those influential voices share our faith and, and our convictions? Because evil is represented by, by ideas and philosophies. And the reason that we face that opposition is because we believe the truth of God. And the enemy hates the truth of God because he does not want people to be free. So evil's a real thing. The devil hates you. Let me say it again. The devil hates you. He wants to destroy your life. Is anyone encouraged yet? A great message for Child Dedication Sunday. We'll get to some encouragement in just a moment. But as Christians, we have to know that we are living in a world that is philosophically is set against God. So there's going to be some opposition. So how should we respond to that opposition? What is, what is our role that we play when we face that? When there's those real fears about, you know, standing on our convictions or, or, or believing the truth of God when it potentially costs us something, or we bump up against that opposition, how should we respond? And there's a really powerful line in our story today when Stephen was about to die. We read it together. And it says that he's, he's looking at the people who are killing him, and he says this. It says, he fell to his knees, shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin, and with that he died. That his last words we're looking at the people who were killing him and saying, God, forgive them. Now, wh why would he do this? Well, he would do this because his example was Jesus Christ. That, that Jesus Christ hanging on the cross would look at the people who were opposing him and killing him and saying, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And this is not unique with Stephen, and it's not unique with Jesus. As a matter of fact, the way that Christians suffer, the way that Christians face opposition has been historically one of the most compelling reasons that people become Christians. Did you know that? That, that one of the, the biggest, most compelling reasons that skeptics become Christians is the way that Christians handle suffering and opposition. You may be familiar 
with the famous uh, history of, of the Roman emperor Nero, 64 AD. It's debated kind of exactly how this went down, but he accidentally kind of set Rome on fire and he blamed the Christians for it and uh, started arresting them. And what he did to them was so cruel. It was the definition of cruelty and persecution. He, he would dress them up in animal skins and they would be eaten by other animals, wild dogs. He would tie them to posts and light them on fire and use their lit bodies as lamps while he would throw parties in the palace. And other emperors that followed Nero would begin to do the same. They, they hated the Christians because a lot of the literature back then would tell us that they hated the Christians because the Christians were peculiar. They didn't act the way the Romans acted and they didn't retaliate the way that the Romans retaliated. And, and, and so they wanted to eliminate this sect of people, these peculiar Christians. But as is the case, every time it looks like evil is winning, God's working. And so the persecution became so severe that Roman citizens who despised Christians actually began to pity them. And we have in, in a letter written from some of the early church fathers from this, this letter, it's called Martyrdom of Polycarp, but it tells us in this one particular instance, these eyewitnesses watching Christians be burned alive said these words, this is a quote, it says, the fire of their savage executioners appeared cool to them because they fixed their eyes on their escape from the eternal unquenchable fire and the good things promised to those who endure. These people who despise these Christians are watching them literally be burned alive and they can't understand why it feels as if the fire is cooling them. That it, it's as if they are not concerned with what is happening to them because they're focused on something else, something eternal. And it's been true for all of Christianity. It's true for you and me that there is a way that we can suffer. There's a way that we can endure opposition. There's a way that we can face the hardships of life that influence our biggest critics towards Jesus Christ. And, and in this way, how we think about persecution and opposition is one of the ways that we can confirm that we have actually understood the gospel message. That, that one of the things that the life of Jesus modeled for us is how to deal with opposition and persecution. And um, definitely want to clarify, I'm not saying that our response in every situation has to be um, passivity. But I am saying that people of faith view their enemies with a pity that the enemy cannot possess. Because we have experienced the grace of God. And I, to become a Christian, I, I have to come to the lowest point of humility to say that without God, I'm capable of anything. I'm nothing without the grace of God. And so even in the instance where someone is treating me unfairly or opposing me, I have to admit the only difference between me and them is the grace of God. If it wasn't for grace, I would probably feel the same way they feel doing the same things that they are doing. And see, when we talk like this, we get a little bit uncomfortable because there's this super, you know, sentimental, positivity, Christianity vibe where it's like, I'm not allowed to be mad at people. I'm not allowed to classify somebody as an enemy. I'm not allowed to feel as if I'm being treated unfairly. I've got to spin it to tell God, like, it's okay. 
But that's not what the Bible teaches us. When Jesus said, pray for your enemies, he was assuming you would have some. Right? And I love the way Eugene Peterson says it. Eugene Peterson says that in order to pray for your enemy, you have to say their name. I love that. That enemy doesn't, enemy doesn't just mean some broad category. Enemy means Barbara or Stephen or Susan or Tim or John. That you feel as if in your, in your life there is an actual person opposing you. Making your life more difficult. Coming against you as you read through the Psalms, you see people praying about their enemies. And they're not, they're not just saying that in some little passive way. They've got a name. They've got a face. They've got a look. And so we, we have this pity for our enemy. We have this pity for those who are opposed to Christianity because we know that the only difference between us and them is they haven't experienced the grace of God yet. And so I wonder what might happen if we took that literally seriously. And maybe today we went home and we wrote down two or three names of the people who are trying to make our life hard, inconvenient, challenging, Maybe you quite literally have people in your life, a family member or a boss or someone you work with, that once they found out that you were a Christian, are trying to make your life more difficult and more challenging. Or maybe you have a landlord, or maybe there's somebody in your life that you would say, look, if you're giving me permission, I will 100% classify them as an enemy. What if we took the words of Jesus literally, wrote down their name, and called their name out to God in prayer every day? And yeah, we're going to be like, God, could you tell them to stop it? But more importantly than that, we're praying for their souls. God, will you help them to experience the grace of God that I have experienced? We retaliate with prayer, with humility, with grace, with forgiveness. We look at the face of the opposition and we say, God, don't hold this against them. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood but against ideas and powers and philosophies. They, they're only doing what they know to do, and if they knew what I knew and experienced what I experienced, they would be doing what I'm doing. So God, don't hold it against them. Forgive them. Help me to forgive them. And so the gospel forces me to accept that I am no better than them. I've only been rescued by the love and the grace of God. It gives me a, a spirit-filled pity for them. And so we get this example of how to respond to opposition. And I have to admit to you, I'm going to end in this, I'm going to give you one more point about hope in just a second. But I have to admit to you that even as I was like working on this sermon this week and looking at my notes last night and this morning, I have to admit to you that I've struggled all week with the topic of this message because as we're going through these stories, we have to talk about Stephen, he's the first martyr. But I have to admit that even as I was kind of working on this message, it felt unapplicable, like it felt not helpful because I wonder how many of us are truly facing real opposition for our faith. It was, it, was, it was easy for me to kind of rationalize and downgrade, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that because I know that there are parents in here who are legitimately worried about your kids' souls, your kids' beliefs. That there are people in here who are legitimately afraid of what might happen if they decide to fully go after God, what it would might cost them for their life. 
And so I wonder where we find our hope. Like, is it possible to get swept up in fear and outrage? 100% it is. But is it also very real to be afraid? It 100% is. And so where do we find our hope? Where do we tap into courage and hope because of our faith in Jesus Christ? I want to try to encourage you with that for just a moment, and then we're going to pray together. But we didn't have time to read it, but there, there were two verses right before Stephen died. It says this. It says, uh, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And, and scholars have always marveled at this part of the story because it's this little just kind of caveat that it says that Stephen saw God standing, which everywhere else in the Bible is God sitting. There's only two places where God's not sitting. And so nobody exactly knows what this means. Like, was Stephen getting a standing ovation? Like, what, what was, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a unique detail of the story. But that's, as cool as that is, that's not the point I want to make. Um, th- this, this verse gives us an example of what to do, where we find our hope, where we find our courage when we're facing opposition. It says that he gazed steadily into heaven. That in this moment where I'm sure he potentially is afraid or he's, he's dying, it says that he, he looks, he gazed steadily into heaven. Because this is where our hope comes from. This is where our courage comes from. You're watching the news, you're reading social media, you're having conversations, you're afraid, you're feeling scared, you're losing hope, feel like evil's winning. Our answer is to look to heaven. And only Christians can do this. Only Christians can look to heaven for hope. There are other philosophies out there, you know, like a Stoicism would say, don't be afraid, you have nothing to be afraid of, you know, get over it. Modern philosophy would say, you know, look within, somewhere in you, you'll tap into this courage that you need. It's been in you the whole time, but, you know, you don't have to, it's in there, you'll find it. That's not what Christians believe. Christians believe that the courage and the hope that we need is found by looking to heaven, by looking for the life that is to come. Jesus is our example in this. He went into the garden the night of his arrest when he was going to be arrested and then crucified. And he didn't go into the garden and and slap himself in the face a couple of times and be like, man, get it together. There's nothing to be afraid of. He didn't go in the garden and like look within to find a deep well of courage. He went to the garden. He felt real fear. And he said to God, I don't want to do it. If there was another way to do it, I would do it but your will be done. He knew what was to come. He was looking to the future of what was to come. And as Christians, we live with the knowledge and accept the fact that this world is not our home. And when good things are happening in life, like you're holding your child and dedicating him or holding him in the hospital or 
you get a job or a pay raise, or you buy the home you've been looking for, or you fall in love, or when good things happen, we can forget sometimes that this world's not our home. Matter of fact, you know, the younger you are, you're a Christian, but the younger you are as a Christian, you want to go to heaven, but not necessarily right now. You know what I'm talking about? There's things you want to do in life and accomplish in life. And, but there's something happens the longer you follow Jesus and the older that you get. And you just want to go home. You just want to go home. And, you know, the opposition that we face, it may be represented by a person or, you know, because of our faith. But we face other kind of oppositions, too. Your body's breaking down. People you love have died. The longer you live, the more you see the cracks in this world. And that if there's something in this life that your hope is in, the only certainty is that it will let you down at some point. But the Apostle Paul said to the Christians in Romans, he said, we who are Christians have a hope that does not disappoint. It's Jesus Christ. We look to heaven. And so if nothing else, I mean, there's other things that we could tap into, promises of God, blessings of God. We ain't got time for that. If nothing else, the Christian has this hope. Death will only make me better than I am right now. If when it's all said and done, I lose my life. I mean, yeah, I may lose my job. Yeah, I may lose a relationship. Those are painful things. But even if we get to the, the, the thing that maybe we, we fear the most, which is losing our life, only the Christian can say that even in the act of death, which is the ultimate blow from the enemy, when it looks like the evil's winning, God's working. And even death can only make me better than I am right now. It cannot disappoint. And so whatever we face in these 60 or 80 years or 40 years, we're, we're tasting and experiencing the pain of a world that's been broken by evil. But for 10 million, 100 million years, in the life that is to come, we will live in a place where bodies don't break down. Relationships aren't lost. Opposition isn't felt. And only the Christian faith can give you that hope and can tap into that courage. That even when you face, what they say, the fire of your executioners, it feels like cool to you because of the promise of what is to come. And so I'm going to pray for us and we're going to have the opportunity to take communion as we do every week. And today maybe is a special opportunity. As you come and you take the bread and you dip it into the juice, we have the opportunity today as people of faith to know that we serve a Savior who set aside heaven to come and to be opposed, to come and to suffer. Only Christians can say that. There's no other major religion in the world that God, their God decided to not be God so he could be a human, but our God did. Our God set aside heaven and came to be opposed and to suffer so that we could have the reward of the life to come. And so as we come today and we take the bread, we dip it in the juice, we have a moment just to thank God. God, thank you that you were willing to come and have the courage to face the opposition of evil and to take death and my sin on your back so that no matter what I face, I know that my eternity is secure 
in you. Let's pray.